Welcome to the New York Historical Society's Public Programs Podcast, featuring lectures and conversations presented here at New York Historical's Robert H. Smith Auditorium. The New York Historical Society is a preeminent educational and research institution that is home to both New York City's oldest museum and one of the nation's most distinguished research libraries. This podcast, recorded live on Monday, March 5th, 2018, is a part of the Bernard and Irene Schwartz Distinguished Speaker Series. Historian and Columbia University professor Lin Hang Wen and national security expert Max Boot discuss one of the defining events of the Vietnam War, the Tet Offensive. And now, enjoy the podcast. Well, first off, let me say what a pleasure it is to be back at the uh, New York Historical Society, and thanks to Louise and Dale and everybody else who makes this such a citadel of civilized conversation in the, in the middle of Manhattan. And uh, it is a doubly a pleasure uh, to be speaking with somebody with, for whom I have such great admiration, who's, who wrote this uh, fantastic book that I heartily recommend called Hanoi's War, Telling the Story of the Vietnam War. Uh, through uh, newly opened uh, Vietnamese archives. And as you can see, there's a lot of sticky notes in here. And that wasn't, I wasn't doing that because I was going to interview her. Uh, I did that in the course of my own book research because I found this an invaluable book. And Hang is also uh, at heart at work on another book, among, uh, among others, on uh, the Tet Offensive. But before I get that, let me uh, uh, just very briefly note that she is uh, now joined us here in New York, uh, teaching at Columbia. Uh, in addition to the uh, Tet Offensive book, she's also the general editor of the forthcoming Cambridge History of the Vietnam War. And uh, I would also say, among other things, among uh, other well-deserved accolades, you are a true uh, all-American success story. Uh, I want to begin by asking you to uh, hang to uh, tell us a little bit about your background and your family background. Sure. It's so nice to be here. Thank you so much for coming. Um, I was just talking to Max and telling him about a little bit about my family. I'm the youngest of nine. And from that, he was like, what? <laughs> uh, but yes, we, um, I was born in Vietnam. Uh, it was five months when my family left. My father is from Haiyung, which is about 30 miles east of Hanoi. Um, and he was part of the Great Migration in 1954, uh, who left, um, you know, when, during the Geneva Accords when the country was partitioned at the 17th parallel. He was Catholic, uh, also came from a pretty large family. And then my mother's side is originally from Guangbin, which is in the central region, but she uh, grew up in Saigon. She was born and raised in Saigon, and they're Buddhist. So my father's side, very uh, strongly anti-communist, although his father did join the Viet Minh against the French initially um, until they became more ardently communist. Um, And then my mother's side, many of her kin actually joined the revolution in the South. So that's my sort of mixed family background. And And then they had nine of us. Right. And on your father's (laughs) side, they, they moved from North Vietnam to South Vietnam, right? Yes. So indirectly beneficiaries of uh, Operation Passage to Freedom engineered by, by Ed Lansdale, right? 
Yes, I would say at Lansdale. Uh, I would say many people were a part of that yeah. uh, of that operation, including uh, just local priests who led their flocks southwards and had sort of no interaction with Americans. But, but Lansdale was very important, so it was Nguyen Ziem. So my family, especially my father's side, um, was a part of that that mass movement that saw one million uh, Vietnamese move in this 300-day period, which was, of course, the largest movement of people up to that point, definitely within Asia. And you're, you're obviously your father's side of the family, very strongly anti-communist, but you're saying that your mother had relatives who were in the Viet Cong? Yes, yes. How did that work out? Well, I mean, I think I was typical. It was, you know, there were there were people, there were families who had, you know, uh, they, they were just, it was, it was really a civil war in many respects for many families. You had people on all, you know, on, on all the different sides, on both different sides. Um, and you worked it out. And what was, what was your family doing prior to, to emigrating? What, what were they doing in South Vietnam? Yeah, so my father was in the Arvin. He was uh, in the Army of the Republic of Vietnam, um, and he was a military recruiter. My mother had all nine of us at that point, and she was just working as a seamstress. Before that, she had worked for Pasteur, a French company. Um, and we were like any other sort of typical South Vietnamese family at this point. My father, everyone knew that the Americans were about to go. Um, and once we heard that song, we knew that there were... You this, had to, was, this was in April of 1975. April of 1975. So White Christmas, yes. which is just weird to play in April. And even yes. the Vietnamese knew that. Right. Uh, to that get was, to that your was the signal to evacuate America, yes. final Americans from Saigon. Right. And so how did, what did they do? So we were supposed to meet... So one of my uncles was in the Air Force, and he had access to a helicopter. And we were supposed to make it to the, one of the local high schools where he would land the helicopter and take not just my immediate family, but also some other aunts and uncles and cousins um, out of Saigon. And when we finally got the signal, he ended up not, or he ended up the first try not being able to get the helicopter. And the second try, he wasn't able to land because it was shooting. Um, So we went back to our house. At that point, one brother went out to the local uh, Buddhist pagoda and was playing soccer because I think, I mean, I think in that confusion, people were just out and about milling around in the in the cities, um, in the streets. Uh, Finally, we found him. We made it down to the riverfront, um, and from there, we jumped onto a boat that usually could hold twenty people. More than a hundred were on, um, and it stayed there on that side of the Batang of the Saigon River. And so my father left, thinking he could get more family members on the boat. Uh, but in one of his sort of journeys away from the boat across the other side of Saigon, the boat actually crossed the river. And so when he returned, um, he had to figure out how to get to the other side without wasting the time because it was clear the boat was going to leave. Um, and he managed to get a dinghy, jumped on board, got on the boat, and then it made um, its way out of the port um, and into, inter- no, it wasn't international waters yet. At that point, by the, by the morning, um, or before the crack of dawn, the captain of the boat ordered us off of the ship and onto this sort of raft that was about 30 miles out off the coast of Gangpo, which is south of Saigon. Um, at that point, we were kind of leaving this boat, young children, babies. Myself, I was five months old. Um, my parents, my grandmother, um, who was in her 70s at the time. Um, so we all were able to deboard safely. Uh, but then when morning came, uh, dawn came, then there was, and it was clear that Saigon had fallen, 
Um, then there was shelling of the, of the raft. Uh, but fortunately, at that point, all merchant vessels, um, the U.S. Navy was on high alert to pick up any refugees. And we were picked up and then finally brought to the 7th Fleet. That's a dramatic coming to America story. <laughs> and I didn't find out any of this until much later. In fact, I found out when I was invited to speak at the National Book Festival in 2012. And I said, you know, I could talk about Hanoi's war. But, you know, instead of getting into the nitty-gritty of these you know, academic arguments, I want to tell the story about how we came to the United States. So I forced them to tell me my story, tell the story, and then I incorporated that into the talk. I actually, I mean, I, I came to the United States the following year, but it was a little more placid where you just get on an airplane and, and go from the Soviet Union to Italy to New York. There was not that hair-raising escape in the midst of war. And so presumably you wound up in a refugee resettlement center and then... We were in no less than, I think, three refugee camps. One, the first one was in Midway and then Guam and then eventually Indian Town Gap, Pennsylvania, um, which is near the Carlisle Barracks. And then from there, a Methodist church sponsored my family, um, and we lived, we moved close to Media, Pennsylvania, where the congregation was. And then, so there's nine of you, and your father, uh, as I understand it, was working as a welder for Amtrak, and uh, these nine kids, of whom you are probably the least educated as a, as a Columbia University professor. They're all incredible success stories, right? Yes, he was. So, yes, that's a, my father uh, got a job as a track welder for Amtrak. He had to join the union, which made him actually a little uncomfortable because he thought, okay, first union, second, you know, then he'll be a card-carrying communist member. Uh, that didn't happen. Uh, but he uh, he appreciated the 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 railroad union, um, and was a great member. Uh, and so he worked night shift um, and built the, um, the tracks outside Philadelphia and Wilmington, Delaware. And then my mother uh, got a job as a postal clerk. Um, so she was working the night shift as well. And the one thing they kept saying is get an education so you don't have to be a track welder and a postal clerk. And at the, at, at the risk of making a detour into current politics, I will say that it is stories like yours that truly make America great. Now, now you went to the University of Pennsylvania and, and Yale for graduate school where you got your Ph.D. And then you entered uh, the, the fraught field of, of Vietnam War studies, and you've obviously made a major contribution already, and, and will make more of a contribution. I, I stress this terrific book because you've really tapped into uh, the Vietnamese archives uh, in a way that's hard for us uh, gringos to do uh, and mm-hmm. have made a tremendous contribution. How, you know, tell me about the process of researching in, in Vietnam, which is, after all, still a communist dictatorship. Mm-hmm. Well, it was interesting. I had very good training at Yale, and you know, when I um, when I took my orals, which is the exam you take to become a PhD candidate, my advisor at the time, John Lewis Gaddis, and this actually took place on 9/11. And so, you know, the one thing a graduate student thought um, he or she would have is their advisor's undivided attention during quals because it's a huge orals because it's a huge step. And he, and then my other advisor, Paul Kennedy, kept getting called out of the room. And I'm like, what is going on? Um, and it turned out later, of course, it was 9-11. And I, I just couldn't believe that they held it together to ask these questions about U.S. Um, farm 
relation, foreign relations history, the British Empire, which is what my field was with, with Paul Kennedy, um, and just managed to hold it together and, and just have this exam. Uh, but after we kind of called our, our loved ones in New York City and found out what was happening, um, I prepared to go do research in Vietnam. And at that point, John Lewis Gaddis said to me, okay, before you go off, you need to know, just lower your expectations. You probably will not find any new um, cache of, of, of documents, no new archival collections that really change anything we know about that war. Uh, but you could at least fill out the details. And so I said, okay, that's kind of not what you want to hear. You want to hear that, you know, you'll be able to get access to all of the archival materials you want to. You'll be able to write this this great history that sort of, you know, changes what we know. Um, But that was fine, and that was true. He should have warned me because the archival landscape is a bit tricky. So the three archives that would have informed my research the most, the party archives, the military archives, uh, and the foreign ministry archives are all closed. And they're not even just closed to foreign scholars, they're closed also to Vietnamese like national uh, scholars. So if you are a Vietnamese citizen, you can't gain access to these archives. Um, and you have to be a party member or a member of that, of the party, the foreign ministry, or the military. Um, so, you know, if that were, was all closed, there was really no way I could write a book like Hanoi's War. But I came, I, w- I arrived at a time where relations between the Vietnamese diaspora community and the Vietnamese government was changing. They were relaxing um, some of the tight restrictions um, to the archives. And I was like the right, I was just the right person at the right time. And I gained access to the foreign ministry archives. But what I found was, you know, it's not really the official documents that ended up really sort of enlightening and um, informing the book, but it turned out to be these sort of what I call renegade publications, Um, these memoirs written by uh, former party officials, um, these sort of studies that pull from what would be, what we would just probably consider political gossip, but it really aired the party's um, secrets. And from that, there's a sort of long tradition in Vietnamese history of what's called official history and then wild history, so the non-court history. And what I was writing at the end of it by using these renegade publications was the sort of wild history, was Yasin um, in in Vietnamese. So the non-court history of of basically Vietnam or Hanoi's war. And has this been uh, published in Vietnam? Oh, it's a long, torturous process. No, um, they would have to basically black out too much. Um, So it hasn't passed the... uh, the censors yet, but we'll see. I mean, there's, they've uh, they've translated quite a number of books that we were shocked, um, you know, that they actually were published. So I, I have no idea, and I wonder actually if um, the Lynn uh, Novick and Ken Burns documentary might change that. And did you talk to a lot of veterans of the war as well from the Vietnamese side? So one of the interesting things about being a young Vietnamese American woman is that. Um, there was a lot of underestimation. They're like, well, are you sure you're not interested in, you know, sort of different aspects of the war, uh, cultural history, social history? And I said, yes, I am. I'm interested in everything. Uh, but my questions tended to be focused on high-level decision-making, military planning. Um, and when I asked these questions, they actually probably gave more frank answers because they didn't think I would do what I did with the information that they gave me. So that was the one time in which, in this sort of very patriarchal society, it helped to be a young Vietnamese-American woman. The other thing I found quite interesting is when I was, like, banging on the doors of these archives saying, please let me in, I, I want to see these materials, they would say to me, the, the, um, the archivists, they'd say, 
you know, go and write a book, become a big name, come back, and then we'll let you gain admission. I'm like, it doesn't work that way. That's kind of a chicken and the egg issue there. Chicken and egg. Now, you speak fluent Vietnamese? I do. Good for you. Uh, We won't go into my tortured history of forgetting Russian. Um, Let's talk now that this is billed as a talk about the Tet Offensive, and you're actually working on your book about the Tet Offensive, but at the risk of... I don't want to. I don't want you to reveal too many spoilers. But spoiler alert. Uh, but uh, what are, what's what's been surprising to you in the course of your of your research? What are you learning that we haven't known before? Gosh, it's it's actually what what hasn't surprised me. I mean, I thought that I had uncovered a lot of the sort of parties, um, dirty secrets for Hanoi's war, but they just keep coming out uh, with this study this comprehensive history of the Tet Offensive that I want to do. Um, And what I found, so that there were these sort of very intense power struggles, personal rivalries taking place not only in Hanoi on the eve of the Tet Offensive, so through 1967, uh, but they were also taking place in Saigon and Washington, D.C. Before you go too deep into that, I should probably just pause and and ask kind of the Brian Lamb C-SPAN question, which is what was the Tet Offensive? Oh, what was the Tet Offensive? Okay. (laughs) The Tet Offensive um, was part of a large military um, campaign done by North Vietnam that sought to use um, overwhelming force, mainly main force unit attacks, against all the cities and towns across South Vietnam, a surprise attack that held the power to what the North Vietnamese hoped would... would, um, basically instigate a mass insurrection that would topple the Saigon regime. So the way it played out was the the surprise attack would take place on the Lunar New Year holiday, so the end of January of 1968. Um, That was sort of what it was... the objective was that was sort of what happened by the end of 1967 um, as it was sort of crafted and debated in Hanoi. But what I was able to find out, at least in the first section of my book, because I think of it sort of as a spotlight. So the first spotlight is shining on Hanoi um, throughout the, the course of 1967. And I begin, because I'm just going to give one spoiler alert, and this will make my agent and editor very happy because I missed the 50th anniversary, but here it is. So what I uncovered was... on. Late December 1967, there was an assassination attempt against, drumroll, Ho Chi Minh. Late 1967, on his return, return trip, and this is important because he was not in Hanoi. He was residing in Beijing, and it was called the sort of rest stay. He was in the hospital recuperating, but really he was banished. He was exiled to Beijing. Uh, but the party, the Politburo, had invited him to come back to attend the meeting that would sort of pass the Tet Offensive Resolution, Resolution 14. And they knew he was against it. They knew that he was against the actual planning of it, that it would use overwhelming force against the cities and towns across South Vietnam to instigate this mass insurrection. He didn't think it was possible. And in fact, he thought that what would happen is uh, the Viet Cong forces, the NLF infrastructure, the National Liberation Front, so the Southern Vietnamese communists, would be wiped out. That the communist forces just didn't have the power to pull this off. So they invited him back, and when he took this flight uh, into Hanoi, into Zalam Airport from Beijing, his pilot, as I think what I believe, had Ho Chi Minh was sort of thinking of his talking points for this upcoming meeting, his pilot was like, something is wrong as they were flying into Zalam Airport. And this was a very experienced pilot. Um, and he realized that something was off and he wouldn't land. He kind of circled the airport twice. And it was a good thing he did because when later on it was revealed that, in fact, the signal light was deviated by 15 degrees. 
Coincidence? I don't know when party leaders knew what he was intending to do. He was powerless. It still went forward. Uh, Resolution 14 basically passed the Tet Offensive strategy as it was conceived by the, who I call the more military leaders, militant leaders, under Lezuan and Leydig Ta. So that's the first, that's the spotlight on Hanoi, and that's 1967. So there was something going on. How did you find out about this attempt on Ho Chi Minh's life, which is something I'm not aware of learning previously? Renegade publications. They're, all of these stories are trickling out. Uh, they're not the materials you find in archives because, again, the archives are still closed. But now we have enough of the pilot has given his uh, testimony. It's been recorded. Um, there's been um, the actual story is actually from Ho Chi Minh's second personal secretary who was not arrested in 67 has also revealed this story. So we're piecing together, again, this is possibly called the party gossip, but these are the sort of details. Um, But essentially what was happening was there was a large purge, the largest in Vietnamese history, of about 200 to 300 people were arrested throughout the course of 1967 into early 1968. Um, And the the sort of objective of the people who are waging these arrests uh, was basically to sideline Ho Chi Minh, uh, sideline also General Vong Wing Zap, so the two men whose names are most closely associated with Hanoi's war. Um, their deputies were arrested. There was also to arrest these pro-Soviet moderates who never wanted to go to war in the South in the first place. They believed that the country could be reunified through different means, mainly you know, sort of political uh, or peaceful means. They were arrested. Um, and so it was usually used to also send signals to Moscow and Beijing, because this was a time when both allies were exerting intense pressure on the North Vietnamese to sort of wage war in the way that they wanted it to be waged. The Soviets wanted to, you know, sort of showcase their hard weaponry, um, and, you know, they also wanted the North Vietnamese to engage in negotiations. The North Vietnamese militant leadership wasn't ready to do that yet, and the Chinese at the same time wanted the Vietnamese to sort of wage Maoist guerrilla warfare. So they were really being pulled in two different directions from two very important um, allies. And so this, the purge was also meant to sort of tell them to back off. Um, and so and the third objective was to quash, squash this dissent within North Vietnam of these pro-Soviet uh, moderates who were sort of, uh, they were criticizing uh, the way the war was being waged. So that's the sort of first section. This is all very important because the Tet Offensive was the militant leadership's way of clamping down dissent and sidelining Ho Chi Minh and General Zap. And who was the prime mover behind the Tet Offensive? was the General Secretary, General Secretary Lei Zung. Now, before, when I wrote this and before the Burns-Novik documentary, I don't think he was as well known. It was really Ho Chi Minh and General Zap. Um, but I think, thanks to the documentary, more people know that there was this General Secretary who was actually, and the General Secretary is a top party position um, in a communist uh, government. He was acting General Secretary from 1957 official general secretary in 1960, all the way until 1986. So this man was basically in charge of the, of the Vietnamese Communist Party throughout the American uh, War, as well as pretty much throughout the Cold War. But yet we know little about him. And I argue, at least in this book, that he, he did that purposely. He lacked you know, Ho Chi Minh's grandfatherly demeanor. Uh, he didn't have Zap's military prowess. He wasn't the hero of Dien Bien Phu. And he wasn't like this sort of very charismatic uh, diplomat that Phan Dang Dam was. But what he had that the others didn't have was he was extremely organized. He, had, he was steely-willed, and he was willing to take down any rivals and competitors. So he was able to sort of you know, basically build this empire in Hanoi, the likes of which 
no one had ever seen before that. No, I think that's one of the great contributions that you made is that you made you put Lesuan kind of front and center in, in the North Vietnamese war effort. And, and I think many people realize the extent to which Ho Chi Minh had become largely a figurehead by the 1960s. Yes. Figurehead that was pretty much beaten up by these militants, so to speak, um, towards the end of his life. He had contemplated retiring from political life in 1963 because he, was, he had been castigated too many times. Uh, he ended up not doing it, and instead he sort of um, just took on this symbolic role as his foreign emissary. You know, who was, which, which faction was right about the Tet Offensive? Because it certainly did not spark this uh, general uprising and, and, and lead to the immediate military defeat of South Vietnam and and the United States. Yes, so this is, I mean, it turns out Ho Chi Minh and General Zat were right. There was no way that the communist forces could pull off this general offensive and general uprising. The people uh, didn't end up rising alongside uh, the troops to overthrow the, the Saigon regime. And in fact, this was what Ho and Zap had been counseling, that they lacked the sort of strength in the cities to pull this off. And they had advocated said to build up to the cities, to start the attacks in the countryside, in the um, less populated areas where the battles, big battles could take place. Uh, But they were vetoed at every turn. So they, in turn, actually ended up um, being the victors, but they had already been silenced. Again, as I said, Ho Chi Minh was exiled to, uh, he was banished to to Beijing, and Zap was actually banished to Hungary. So neither of them were actually in country throughout most of 1967 while the planning was taking place. Okay. <laughs> but their supporters just basically, I mean, they, they remained in jail um, throughout 1967, many of them until 1976. Many of them died in prison. Uh, and then beyond that, the one man who's, uh, this affair has been known as the anti-party affair. Uh, it's also been named the Huang Minjin affair. He remained uh, in jail or under house arrest until the 1980s. So it was definitely something that, that wasn't just about the Hanoi's war, but had ramifications beyond that, past the 76 reunification. From the North Vietnamese perspective, was the Tet Offensive a mistake? So this gets to, I mean, it depends on your, you know, the objectives. And what, one of the things I'm going to argue in this next book is that Lei Zuan, let's say, I'm going to argue had three objectives. There was the sort of, the, the, the best, the, the, the sort of best case scenario was that the troops would be able to rally the people because they were able to sort of knock out the centers of power, get to the radio stations, broadcast that the end was near, that victory was in sight, um, and that the people would rise up and topple the, the, the government. That was best case scenario. If not, and because Lei Zuan wasn't crazy, he was basing this in some sort of fact and reality, he looked to the summer of 1966 when there were major uprisings, when it did look like certain cities in South Vietnam were on the cusp of revolution, that there were like tinderboxes ready to explode these cities. That happened in the summer of 1966. So he thought maybe 68 was a repeat of, of the summer of 66. Um, especially that was mainly, in 66, that was mainly Buddhist uprising, right? Buddhist uprising, um, they were the, it was a struggle movement, so right. political, uh, Buddhist political movement that uh, joined forces with the military. 
warlord at the time in I-Corps. I-Corps is the northern part of South Vietnam. So this, this sort of secondary aim, so if we can't topple the Saigon regime, if a general insurrection doesn't unfold, maybe, and this is where, again, no one else argues this, I think I have the evidence, secondary aim is that he could create a rump state. If he could break I-Corps off, so this is the northern part of the country that holds Hue, that holds Da Nang, so very important populated centers in South Vietnam. Uh, if you could break them off, if they're either neutral or friendly or under communist control, that would mean a very diminished Republic of Vietnam. So I think that's a secondary aim. I have evidence of him talking about that. So in that sense, he wasn't, it wasn't a sort of flight of fancy. It, it could have happened. And then the third aim, the least important objective, for the Tet Offensive was to strike a political and psychological psychological blow to the United States in a very important election year. That worked pretty well. That one worked pretty well. <laughs> didn't get one, didn't get two, but got the third. And that was, I mean, it was, I mean, I'm assuming that you kind of agree with the kind of conventional wisdom that the Tet Offensive was the turning point in, in the American attitude towards the war. If you disagree, and I'm seeing by your body language you disagree, please disagree. <laughs> he's, he's good at being this moderator. Yes, I do. Um, before I get there, because that that's the third section of the book, the second one, uh, the second section actually unearths the same sort of ugly um, political struggles, rivalries, but this time in Saigon. So just as the first waves of the 1968 military year unfolds with the Tet Offensive attacks or the, the Tet attacks uh, in late January, they, they um, basically carry out a second wave in May. And throughout the course of these two waves of attacks, what's going on in Saigon is that the president, Wing Bang Thieu, and the vice president, Wing Gao Ki, who made comments where he looked up to Hitler would walk around with his um, flight attendant wife, would like just basically spend all of South Vietnam's resources in courting her. I mean, these were awful people. Nicknamed Captain Midnight because he uh, wore the outfit of a cartoon character named Captain Midnight. But anyway. And he was cartoonish. I mean, the stuff, I mean, he would... Anyway, so, so these two actually used the counter operations, the sweeping up our operations against the Viet Cong strongholds throughout the city, and especially Jelung, to actually uh, wage war between themselves. There was this major battle that unfolded between uh, Tu's men and Guy's men. And the sort of high point, if Ho Chi Minh's uh, assassination attempt against Ho Chi Minh is the sort of big climax of my first section, the second one, again, spoiler alert, is that in early June of 1968, as these you know, counter-operations are taking place, there is a rocket attack against Vice President Wayne Kauke's headquarters, and it basically knocks out his base of support. And the big question was, did he order that attack, and were the Americans... Um, supportive of that, and they actually carried it out. And they did carry it out. It was an American um, helicopter. Uh, basically, the, the rocket was fired from, from a U.S. Um, vessel. So, I mean, that, you know, there's, there's, so there was something ugly taking place also in Saigon, which we only understand just as sort of, we're I mean, only scratching the surface. I mean, I would just sort of with my knowledge of, of the U.S. military, I'm kind of doubting that the U.S. military actually consciously set out to kill the the vice president's key men, but it's it's quite conceivable they would have been easily tricked into doing that so by faulty the intel. So one of standard operating procedures is that this helicopter didn't fly back to uh, where he should have, which was a carrier off the, the coast, and didn't and actually bypassed. 
So there, there are some, and again, it's rumor, nothing is substantiated, cannot find anything in the U.S. archives. A lot of this was sort of um, circulating in the Saigon rumor mill. But yeah, right I would, before this... I would be suspicious of, of, the, of the rumor mill in that case because I think there's a tendency to ascribe uh, conspiratorial motives to simple incompetence, which is generally the, Possibly. the, the correct yeah, that's explanation. True. That's true. The only, the other sort of sticking point is this attack was the climax. There was a sort of... Um, in addition to this rocket attack, there was um, the taking out of General Wing Up Luang, who, you know, his rise to infamy was captured in that image of him shooting uh, the Viet Cong prisoner um, whose hands were tied behind his back. Uh, but he was um, uh, Guy's right-hand man. Before him, uh, Lu Kim Kung, who was also very integral to Guy's operation, was, you know, the, again, killed in a battle uh, but it wasn't clear who killed him, if it were it was, was the VC or one of Q's men. So the string of, like, this was the third of, of this sort of targeted, what it seemed like to many people, sort of campaign against Guy's men and not Q's men in the fighting that unfolded in the, in the spring uh, and early summer of 1968. So that's the sort of second section. Now we get to the third. So was Tet Offensive a turning point? I'd say yes to a certain extent, and also no, a lot stayed the same, so much of the same. Uh, for the remainder of 1968 into early 1969. Um, and that's where the sort of third spotlight shines, and it, it starts with, you know, on um, the eve of LBJ's announcement in, in, on March 31st that it basically looked like the United States would de-escalate the war. Johnson announced that he wouldn't uh, seek his party's uh, nomination, uh, so he wouldn't seek re-election. He also had already at that point rejected Westmoreland and the Joint Chiefs of Staff um, that they are advised to pour in another 206,000 troops into the country. Uh, he also announced that bombing would halt north of the 20th parallel and that he was ready to engage in negotiations with Hanoi and Paris. So those four things happening at the end of March looked like pointed to the U.S. de-escalating the war. But in fact, the fighting was just and if not more so, violent throughout the course of 1968. More Americans died um, in the latter half than uh, in the first half or any other point of that war. Uh, so in many ways, he wasn't ready to throw in the towel. So whoever was going to be elected president wasn't going to be boxed into de-escalation. That's what I argue. And the sort of, again, the sort of crescendo or the climax of the third section is what I intend to discuss, which is foreign collusion in an American election, oh. South Vietnamese. But... I mean, it is the case that uh, that there was a, a, a major turn in U.S. public opinion as a result of the Tet Offensive. Walter Cronkite's famous statement that this was a stalemate victory was impossible. I mean, that did change, I think, the psychology of the American public towards the war. And and you're right that, I mean, there was still massive fighting from in 68 and into 69. But it was, I mean, psychologically it was clear at that point that it was really just a question of time before we would uh, pull out. It, that's definitely true. I mean, I think what happened with 68 is that Americans, Cronkite, um, people became disillusioned with the way the war was being handled. That didn't mean an immediate pullout. So that, that would be the, the distinction between sort of what impact um, did the Tet Offensive have on either media portrayal or domestic opinion. What was the what, what do you see as the impact of being uh, of the anti-war movement in the United States, and to what extent uh, did Hanoi try to manipulate or to encourage the anti-war movement? So 
This is tied into what I think of Lezuan not really sort of understanding the power of social protest movements uh, globally. So there was no general insurrection or uprising in Saigon, uh, the one that he had wanted to sort of foment and, and cause. But there were major uprisings here in New York City at my own campus in Columbia. What happened in April, late April of that year shut down the first major private institution, Ivy League uh, university for, depending on who you talk to, six weeks to three months. It doesn't actually take the record. I think San Francisco State stayed closed for six months um, as a result of anti-war protests. Uh, but anti-war protests taking place across the cities and towns uh, in the United States, in Europe. We all know Paris. Uh, we all know London. We all know uh, cities uh, in Germany. Um, you know, basically Western Europe looked like it was on the verge of, of a major uprising. Now, this wasn't all as a result of the Vietnam War, but the Vietnam War and the Tet Offensive was a catalyst. In addition to Europe, Mexico City, Tokyo. So, in fact, what Lei Zuan was able to do was actually start what seemed like could have been an insurrection uh, globally. Now, that wasn't what he sought to do, um, but it's interesting if you sort of look at unintended consequences, uh, the uprisings that did occur throughout other parts of the world and not South Vietnam. Um, So in terms of the sort of anti-war movement, that I think points to Lei just inability to sort of understand or harness the power of global public opinion. Um, Though, that said, the party started paying more attention to what is called the global anti-war movement. They invited more anti-war groups to to North Vietnam to tour the devastation, destruction uh, caused not only by American bombs, which did end, which did stop uh, by November of 1968, uh, but just in general, what war did to to North Vietnamese um, society and to the general population, and especially once... um, Nixon began the air war over North Vietnam. Uh, and so they, you know, they, they did bring more groups. But to say that you know, they, they influenced or exploited um, the very heterogeneous anti-war movement would deny agency to those groups and individuals who had many different reasons uh, to take up this cause. I mean, there's so many differences between a middle-class mother who had joined Women's Strike for Peace, a black radical who belonged to the Black Panther Party who lived in Cuba, uh, Algeria, visited Vietnam, or you know, an SDSer, a student, um, who wanted to bring down the establishment. They had very different reasons and some of their own causes to take up the fight against the Vietnam War. So I would say it's sort of a you know, common interest to stop American aggression intervention in Vietnam. That's what the party saw in the global anti-war movement, and they tried to harness it, even though those in, leader, uh, in the leadership positions didn't really uh, give it as much attention um, as, say, the sort of military balance of power on the ground. Do you think that the anti-war movement had a tendency to romanticize North Vietnam? Um, You know, I don't think either side really truly understood the other in terms of the global or the anti-war movement or those who were involved in the anti-war movement in Vietnam. Um, So the hosts of people who would come uh, to visit the country or those who participated in these sort of conferences that took place in Canada or Europe between folks in the anti-war movement and those in Vietnam. Um, and then, you know, I think I always love kind of pointing to uh, when the delegation of yippies arrived in North Vietnam in 1970, and there were three, you know, young women and their hosts who were, you know, a lot of these women who were uh, party sanctioned to receive these visitors to Vietnam tended to be older women who had fought in the French Indochina War, 
continue to fight or send, um, you know, children uh, to the second Indochina war. Uh, But, you know, they they came from not only sort of a different culture, a different uh, generation. uh, They they were just, I mean, it was talk about cultural miscommunication. So when they first arrived, they actually turned to these, you know, three young women who were, you know, self described yippies. And they said, so are you married? Who's taking care of your children when you're here in Vietnam? And then the women said, we're not married. We don't believe in that sham institution. We believe in heavy petting in communes. And the Vietnamese hosts, the women, they were flabbergasted. They're like, how disrespectful to your one man who should be your husband and you should be having children. So, I mean, there were all of this sort of miscommunication. So I, in certain ways, they didn't really understand each other deeply, but they were committed to a common cause. And I think that that's definitely the case. So the other example I'd like to show is like, Pete Seeger never met his counterpart in Vietnam. There was a sort of countercultural protest scene uh, in Vietnam, in North Vietnam, but those musicians were banned and arrested. They played what was sort of sentimental music, uh, romantic music, not sort of marching songs. Um, they were sort of called traitors and spies and were arrested because their music was too dangerous. So that would have probably been the counterpart of a lot of the American singers. Uh, an artist who performed at, at you know, at, at protest movements, but they never met them. How would you describe the uh, the moral difference between North Vietnam and South Vietnam, if I any? I don't think there was. I mean, they were very different political systems. Um, and, you know, different ideologies that guided these political systems. Uh, But at the core, I think they were, you know, more embryonic states, um, both North Vietnam and South Vietnam, uh, that really sort of faced very turbulent and dangerous times in the Cold War. I mean, they were just emerging post-colonial nations. Um, And so in that way, they actually shared much more in common in terms of what faced the sort of newly emerging states in this very dangerous uh, times, which were the Cold War. Um, And then for North Vietnam, another added sort of complication on top of the sort of East-West rivalry was the Sino-Soviet split. So not only did you have these sort of superpowers fighting it out, um, not directly, but through, you know, sort of proxy wars, manipulation of aid, you know, interventions between Moscow and and Washington. You also had, for the North Vietnamese, you had Beijing and Moscow going at it at every turn whenever they could. And I think as, you know, sort of a North Vietnamese leader or North Korean, all of these smaller uh, communist parties uh, throughout the world really had to figure out how to negotiate the Sino-Soviet split as well. But in many ways, I think at the core both leaders in Saigon and Hanoi faced the same sort of challenges, how to develop a state, um, you know, when, when, when you just basically over, you threw off the shackles of colonialism just a few decades or a few years before. Let me ask you some of the questions from the audience. Uh, can you explain why the war lasted so long after the Tet Offensive? So this, I think, speaks to the Tet Offensive not being as much of a, of a, of a watershed or a turning point um, as much as it could have been. I think it, what it did was it brought in either new faces, Richard Nixon, um, or it strengthened the hand of the leaders who were there. So on Le Zouan's side, that meant that throughout 67, when he got his Tet Offensive, um, he was able to basically wipe out 
the party opposition, the Politburo opposition, Ho Chi Minh and Zap would never, I mean, Ho Chi Minh dies in 1969. They would never sort of amass the challenge that they did in 67 against the way he um, controlled the war. And for Wing Van Kieu, instead of in the South, in Saigon, instead of being toppled because of popular insurrection never unfolded, he was able to take down his major rival, Wing Kauke. So in fact, he was in a better position than he was pre Tet. So in fact, South Vietnam probably bought, like they, they extended their lease on life. So in that sense, you had these, these you know, Nixon, you had Le Zuan, and you had Nguyen Beng Thu, and none of these men were ready to negotiate and to end the war through any sort of diplomatic compromise. They still wanted to win the war basically through military means and then dictating whatever peace would come forward. But you think that Nixon actually thought that he could win through military means and dictate the peace? I think he was intent on dominating the, the, the negotiation process, which in his parlance or his words would mean winning the peace, basically dictating whatever settlement, whatever treaty would come forward. What do you make of the, of the evidence that has emerged in recent years that by the early 70s, uh, Nixon and Kissinger uh, basically just wanted a decent interval after the American pullout and before the fall of South Vietnam. So essentially, they would not be blamed politically uh, for the demise of South Vietnam. So my advisor was one of, or one of my committee members actually argues that Kissinger may have kind of subscribed or to the decent interval that you know was just basically a fig leaf with which the United States could leave South Vietnam, but Nixon was committed to maintaining the war, uh, whether it be through some sort of contingent of forces left on the ground or reintroduction of American air power at a later stage. Now, the the 1973 Paris Peace Accord, which in fact ended American involvement in the war, was uh, pretty one-sided because the U.S. pulled all of its troops out, uh, but North Vietnam was able to maintain over 200,000 troops in South Vietnam. Uh, I mean, how does that... uh, conform to your notion that Nixon actually wanted to to win at some level when he was, you know, leaving uh, Win Van Tu with a situation that he knew was going to be hopeless. Right. I think that was Watergate kind of developed, and that was the one factor he couldn't count or couldn't foresee when he designed the agreement. Well, the Paris Peace Accords occurred before Before, before Watergate blew up. Right. So Watergate prevented him from doing that. But when he signed, Watergate wasn't an issue yet. The other, um, as the other sort of point I would make about the 1973 peace agreement was that Hanoi wasn't ready until the summer of 1972 to sign anything. Again, they were holding out for this general offensive, general uprising. So Le Zuan's strategy for victory to win one more time. And that was 1972. And it didn't mainly because the Chinese and the Soviets stabbed the North Vietnamese in the back and provided them with the weaponry only to defend the North, but not to continue the offensive in the South. So, you know... This is the the 1972 Easter offensive you're talking about. Yes. So this was a sort of third attempt at the same strategy that didn't work or never was implemented in 1960. 465, the Americans came in full force and prevented Lei Zuan from implementing this strategy because he had outlined it in 1963. So he knew, you know, that he or he thought he had the strategy to win the war that early. And again, that at that time was only fighting against Saigon's forces. 
He didn't get to do it in 64, 65, but he was able to implement it in 68. That didn't win. Then he brushed it off of the bookshelves in 1972 in a different sort of um, format, but it was the same idea, and it didn't happen then either. So that was only after his his second try, that he switched to negotiations. So at this point, the diplomatic sphere of the war for him became more important. But before that, he had marginalized. He hadn't wanted to sort of give any resources towards it. And the, the issue for him was that he saw how negotiations had failed um, the North Vietnamese or the, the communist government during the French Indochina War. And in fact, used, you know, the sort of um, the mistake of engaging in premature negotiations against Ho Chi Minh to silence him in 1968 and even before that. So negotiations was basically a very dirty word to Lezuan. And it was only until he decided that there was nothing else he could do um, that he changed his tune. And even that he did in a very interesting way. So he said, okay, so negotiation strategy, um, pretty much up until the summer of 1972, he said that toppling the Saigon regime and forcing the Americans out, you couldn't you couldn't sort of disentangle the two, that they were tied together. You had to have them come at the same time, i.e. a major military victory, and the Americans would leave. Uh, After the summer of 1972, when it was clear there was no way for the North Vietnamese to sort of build up the same resources to launch another offensive, I mean, it might take forever, and by then maybe Saigon would be stronger, Uh, he said, no, 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 I always believed that you negotiate the Americans out, and then you turn to topple the Saigon regime, precisely what Ho and Zap had been telling him from the very beginning of the war. It's just, let's not, let's either not get the Americans in, or once they're in, let's make sure they get out, and then we turn and we topple Saigon. Do you, do you think it's accurate to say that the United States uh, won the war on some level but lost the peace? Won the war and lost the peace. I mean, I think what was taking place was that between 1969, when you know the, the North Vietnamese had to admit that the strategy didn't work, they had to sort of assume a defensive posture on the battlefield, that they were just waiting to amass enough strength. Um, and that would have possibly happened again. So when it looked like the Americans were winning the war was actually when the North Vietnamese were taking like a, like a breather, a brief respite, until they were able to garner enough forces to launch another attack. What this points to is that South Vietnam was never, Saigon regime was never able to sort of get the same sort of, of, of support. Maybe their mobilization drives weren't as strong. I would think it's also because the people weren't willing to follow leaders who didn't clearly have their best interests at stake, but were really only there to maintain power and be in control. So with the lack of that sort of energy on the South Vietnamese side to get the South Vietnamese people to fight, I mean, I I don't think the Americans were winning. I think the Americans, I think it was more the North Vietnamese were resting. What do you think was the dominant attitude of the people of South Vietnam? Because as you pointed out, uh, there was not a general uprising in 1968, nor at any other time. Mm Uh, so there is not a groundswell of support for a communist takeover. But as you also just said, accurately, I think, uh, there was also a distinct lack of enthusiasm for the military junta that ruled in, in South Vietnam. So what did the people of South Vietnam want? You know, and that's, that's a sort of, it's a moving target because I think depending on how many years into the war, the South Vietnamese people 
really, you know, it, it varied, and it varied if you were in the countryside, if you were in the city, if whatever, you know, what socioeconomic class you were from, if you were able to be far away from the war, if you were caught in the villages in the crossfire. I think it varies. Uh, but I think definitely by the end, you know, the South Vietnamese people were tired of, of the fighting in general. Um, and those who were least able to divert and, and, and you know, duck and cover and, and be away from the bombs and, and the shooting um, had sort of little ability uh, to escape, and they did what they could just to stay alive. So I think, you know, it, it just depends on when you ask um, and at what point and how far are you away, are you away from the battles. Uh, but there was definitely, you know, much more going on beneath the surface than to say that, you know, the, the Communist Party sought to win the hearts and minds of the South Vietnamese people and did that and won, and that was the reason that they were victorious. I would say that wasn't, and they never set out to do that. Um, you know, one of the things that they, they learned in the French Indochina War uh, was that you, you, it's impossible to control... Vietnam all the time, and to ensure that you have the people's support all the time. Um, and that was the problem with the end of the French Indochina War, because if you look at any sort of given spot, the French weren't in control, but neither were the, the, the Viet Minh, the communist forces. Um, and, you know, the American War was much uglier. Uh, so, I mean, I think that for the Vietnamese communists, and definitely for the American people, and I would say for the South Vietnamese leadership that never even tried to win over the hearts and minds, that was a moving target. And that was probably something that was definitely beyond the control or beyond the purview or beyond the ability of, for the Americans to win, um, and they didn't try. Uh, the South Vietnamese definitely didn't try. The North Vietnamese, I think people ascribed and said that they did, but that was I'd never seen that sort of in any sort of party, internal party reports about this was the strategy we should employ. It was really about sort of ensuring strict control um, and... Um, Discipline so that we were a- we were able to win, and then you know at the end of the day, it really wasn't America's war to fight, and so in many ways they were on the correct side of history. Uh, but to be on the correct side of history, I think one has to look at the sort of party discipline and this this power of the of the police state that was really victorious in the end. Do you, I mean when you say the right side of history, does that imply that uh, North Vietnam, North Vietnamese victory, a communist victory, was inevitable? I think, you know, if you look at just the numbers, had this... So in 1954, when they negotiated the Geneva Accords, there was supposed to be general reunification elections. That was stipulated in the the final declaration. Now, the United States and Ngo Dinh Diem of the state of Vietnam never signed that final declaration. So for him, he says he would have said he wasn't obligated to hold general reunification elections. But had they been held in 1956, the North would have won. It would have been reunified under Ho Chi Minh. Uh, now, whether a party government, uh, the party could have continued and kept control is a different story because, again, you're a post-colonial nation. The Cold War is extremely dangerous. It's tricky um, to navigate this east-west you know, divide as well as the Sino-Soviet split. But we're entering, you know, this is the realm of counterfactuals and historians don't like them because there's so many different moving parts and different variables. <laughs> but I will say that if you look at sort of the, the policy parties, or the party's policies before they went to war to, to liberate the South and reunify the country, they were losing that. There were so many problems with all of uh, Hanoi's uh, state plans, party policies uh, to set the DRV, the North, Viet- North Vietnamese state, onto this road of socialist revolution, that they were afraid that the party would be toppled by their own people. 
in many ways, going to war in the South rallied people, you know, behind the flag. Now, one of the questions we have is, is about current U.S.-Vietnamese relations uh, premised on the fact that uh, this U.S. aircraft carrier, the Carl Vinson, is about to dock it, or maybe has already docked in, in Vietnam. Uh, first time we've had such a major warship visit since the end of the Vietnam War. So where do the U.S.-Vietnamese relations stand today? This is, you know, and it's not, uh, you can't sort of draw a straight line from 1976 to 2018. um, And you would sort of miss all of these detours along the way, uh, not least to mention the Third Indochina War, the war that broke out between uh, Vietnam, Cambodia, and China. Uh, But what you see now is, you know, of course, the United States and Vietnam working together to contain Chinese hegemony in the region. And this is, you know, it, it, it does blow your mind when you think about the stakes involved in the, the, the Vietnam War or what the Vietnamese called the anti-American War for reunification of national salvation. Um, but yeah, it's either one of the very bitter, ironic twists of, of history. And another, I mean, I see we're about to get the hook, but I would, I would very <laughs> briefly, just in, in, in conclusion, to end on a happy note, it's been, uh, I mean, tell me if I'm wrong in, in discerning when I visit Vietnam that people actually seem to like Americans. They seem to be pretty pro-American, which is not necessarily something one would expect, right? They definitely are. And, you know, the, the majority of the Vietnamese people were born after 1975. So they don't have firsthand, um, you know, memories of that war. Uh, but everyone knows someone who died uh, in that conflict or what they would just like to call the 30-year War, which began under the French and ended with the Americans out, um, but no, definitely. I mean, I think this is this is again is is a happy outcome of a long and and very very um, you know intense relationship between the United States and Vietnam. That you know, I, I guess you can actually go much earlier and go in the 1800s when the United States sent over its first delegation to Vietnam uh, under Min Mang. So this is the 1830s to today. Uh, but lots of twists and turns, and at least right now, uh, a happy episode and one that hopefully will continue. Thank you for listening to the New York Historical Society's Public Programs Podcasts. To learn more about current exhibitions and live programming, Follow New York Historical Society on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at NYHistory, or visit us at nyhistory.org.